0: 1988, Predator was at the top of the UK film chart, although I was too young to watch it, so I was watching Bigfoot and the Hendersons, and twin brothers Luke and Matt Goss had just burst onto the music scene, bringing with them an army of female fans, which led to Brosmania sweeping the globe. I'm so excited to have one half of the duo joining me today from LA, along with the very chatty birds in his garden, to talk about his life after that thing he did. Please welcome Luke Goss. Luke, hello. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. How are you?
1: Well, I'm happy. I wanted to speak to you. Remember, there was this conversation I had with my press guy that said, I'll I'll do this, but I want to see the lady because I think (laughs) and so uh, the the negotiation was that we could at least have a visual chat while we do this. So I appreciate you doing that. Thank you.
0: No, I... I Thank you for your time. Um, the first thing I'm curious to know is what time you went to bed last night, or if you've even been to bed yet, because you're a bit of a night owl, aren't you?
1: I am a night owl. You're right. It's a great question. I went to bed at four-ish this morning. At four a.m. Four? four? a.m., yeah. I got up about eight o'clock, 8.15.
0: Wow, so it's only like you're running on about four hours.
1: I was talking to this British lady, and I thought, I better not get up too late, because I'm I don't know what to talk about. I'm like <laughs> literally one of those people. When I first wake up, I'm like a sleepy bear that, you know, I'm not grumpy or anything. I just love a little bit of quiet. I'm happy and I'm caring. And I'm not grouchy. I just like, like I'm, you know, especially with work, I, I need I need 20 minutes. I don't want to talk about business or emails or what i got to do and all that stuff. So. I mean,
0: when I was younger, I used to be able to – get by on like two or three hours worth of sleep. But but now I need like at least seven hours or I need an afternoon nap. <laughs> so you're doing well if <laughs> you can run on four.
1: I've named my naps I've I, when I, when they hit, you know, every maybe a couple of times a week, that 20 minute recharge, the siesta, I call it an old man nap now. I'm thinking, Look, come on, let's take, take the mickey out of myself today. So when they actually start saying in about 10 or 20 years, I'm used to it, but I think naps rock. It's the way I get through the day, you know, sometimes.
0: Do you have multiple naps during the day then?
1: No. I mean, if I'm working and I've got – there's a 20-minute window that people say, do you want to eat some food? I'm like, I'm going to sleep in those 20 minutes, and I can eat later because I know I'm going to get so much more out of it. So, yeah, if I've got, like, for example, on a promo schedule, and we're bombing around different studios and aircraft and whatever's going on, I, I'll, I'll nap where I can to keep keep going in a fresh way. That's, I'm rubbish at sleeping at night there. Really? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Okay, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. When Will I Be Famous is one of those songs that's so well known, you're surprised that it actually didn't get to number one here in England. Um, A bit like Wonderwall by Oasis and Gold by Spandau Ballet and any song by The Who, really. (laughs) So when you got your first... Number one with IOU Nothing, how did you react and celebrate?
1: Well it's funny actually, number it's a, and, and in keeping with not being number one, you know, the funny story there is when their first release was IOU Nothing, which didn't even get into the top 40. I think it
0: was like number 80, didn't it, first time?
1: I don't, I'm not a big fan of counting the fails. You know, it's, it's not, it doesn't serve anybody. <laughs>
0: we won't talk about that.
1: No, no. I mean, it does, of course. The Wright brothers had to do a few of those to get off the air, didn't they? But uh, no, for me, it was uh, when will I be famous and then number one with I Owe You Nothing when it second released. So it was all so new at that point. We were just we were getting off and entering the charts of 39 with I Owe You Nothing. It was such a buzz. And then before you know it, things would. I, I I don't really remember what we did to celebrate. I'm sure it would be lots of jumping up and down like young kids, opening bubbly stuff and drinking more than we needed, and having really really big headaches the next day. But that would <laughs> be a guess because they have done so much since then. I I genuinely don't remember. But it was um, it was a big 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 moment of joy for everyone because you know who gets to say you've had a number one. But at that point, the noise of the band was kind of uh, taking over whatever was going on. It was just a it was just mayhem. It's, some people may remember, you know.
0: As a drummer, how did you feel being marketed for the teen girl audience because I mean along with the image and the type of music that went with it and you probably saw yourself as more of a a rocker having had the likes of Madness as the soundtrack to your teenage years and I think like the first concert you went to was Depeche Mode so you know obviously the music you then ended up charting with probably quite different to to what you'd envisioned maybe.
1: Yeah, well, I didn't play on the first album. I played live, and you know, we fought hard for that. I mean, I got it was a heartbreaking thing. I, I lost and gained my dream on the first step of the studio. And Nicky Graham had already programmed the drums. He didn't ask me; that already happened. Then. So for me, it was a case of like, look, let's get on with the live stuff, which kept me afloat emotionally. Which is, which is, you know, the reason I own that is I've mentioned it many times because, you know, I got signed from my from the ability to play live, and then the day I walked in the studio, I promise you, I heard those drums coming towards me, thinking if they, if they just negated my presence there. So being a live player, I, I did the best I could to replicate it with a bit of a harder edge. I think Bros was very successful live around the world and our world tours globally because we, we rocked it live. But that gave me an opportunity to do what I thought I was going to do on my album. It wasn't until the second and third albums I actually was able to get myself on that stuff. But um, people would see me as the quiet one. and It was really just me decompressing the heartache and to answer your question about marketing you know it's funny you don't really realize that you i think i I think any celebrity out there that's been a part of a big global campaign with at a young age you don't know what you're a part of you're busy trying to honor your commitments you're running on a plane to play live or do a tv show or then a photo session we've been three countries a day sometimes so i think i was just all i thought i was doing was keeping up with my professional engagement and keeping the fans happy. Yeah. It's not until you get older that you look back and you realize, I realize what I was a part of was what was fine. I mean, I was a young kid appealing to people of my same age or a little bit younger. And of course, that's the most demo- normal demographic. Looking at it now, I ha- who else would we would be appealing to with that music and that age? So I think I think it was bloody great, the whole thing. And I think in reality, the phenomenon of it, which it was, um, is also another thing that I should only look at with like a big fat wow factor. We had a big team of people doing their jobs around us and I'm still here. So um, I am most certainly a result of the walk. And uh, and I'm kind of, I like the skin I'm in right now, even though it's oxidized more since <laughs> I was doing that. A few less hair follicles. And even that I'm, I prefer because I don't have to do any, I don't have bad hair days anymore. So.
0: Late maintenance.
1: <laughs> and the lines on my face reveal who I am. So I'm thinking this is working out finally, you know.
0: On the um, on the fans that you mentioned there, the Brossettes were pretty committed. Um, you know, they had their dress codes, ripped jeans, the um, Grolsch beer bottle caps on their shoes. I'm not sure who started that, if that was you or, or someone else. But um, my
1: brother started it. Yeah. Well,
0: he's, he has a lot to answer for, I think. <laughs> but um, fans waiting outside your house for hours on end just to get a glimpse of you. Could you believe just how big Brosmania was at the time?
1: I know I knew how big it was. When you when you get off an aircraft and you have fifty police officers blocking junctions and get into a hotel with close protection of fifteen people, police, and you turn on the TV and you're the news. You see it in its reality. What never happened to me was me thinking I'm many different to where I was before. Like what I've walked around with is the understanding of it and the observation of it and thinking, anyone who sees me and I wanna say something as well, just to put the front end, the brush fans are a tour de force today, man. They fill up arenas for us in minutes or seconds still. So I just want to say to every single bros fan out there in the world hearing this, my goodness, I don't play arenas still without them. When they want to see our band, they don't only let, it know, let people know. They show up in force, and 50,000 of them showed up after 27 years, just two years ago. So they are still a tour de force that I love. And, and to be honest with you, there's no kind of celebrity doing the cliche thing here. I love my... Uh, supporters out there and the fans of the band and the supporters of whatever I do. And um, I've only been an entertainer for three plus decades because of them. And so it's nostalgia, but my goodness, what an amazing bunch of loyal individuals they've been. I I have so much love for them. It's crazy.
0: You mentioned the police there, having to hold back the fans. And um, I think there was an incident where the police had to close off Oxford Street, which for, for anyone that's not from England, it's like the busiest shopping street in London because you were doing a, a signing. But did you ever feel sorry for the police, for, for having to deal with the hordes of screaming fans?
1: I felt thankful for them. I felt grateful. But I, to be honest with you, I don't know, you know. I think there's a lot of things you could be doing on a day. I think there are, there are moments in pop history, there are moments in political history, there are moments in all sorts of history if there's a bit of mayhem sometimes, and no one's really getting hurt, and it's all a bit fun and silly, and this is what it's all this about kind of energy, and one gets to be a part of it, then anyone who's shaking their head, getting pissed off, is probably got to take a minute and you know get on their knees and say a prayer and say thanks a lot. You know, I could have been a worse day, but you know, I appreciate them. They kept us safe. But really, you know, there was just a lot of noise. And it was it was. You know, it's gratitude what I felt for them. I hope, you know, I didn't feel that they were in harm's way. I didn't feel that anyone was going, to, they were being really supportive to us, but um, I didn't feel bad for them.
0: Though. How do you deal with screaming hysterical girls? You know, if you're doing a meet and greet and somebody's coming to you with like tears streaming down their face and they're like, oh my God, oh my God like barely verbalized sentences. I mean, is that awkward? How do you, what do you do with that?
1: No, I don't. For me, no. I think it's a moment of collective anticipation. I think it's a moment of collective love. I think it's a moment of collective um, beauty in all different forms and intensity that has suddenly has a bottleneck moment. And I'm with non non boastfulness, non ego, nothing. Just a, just the truth of it. I happen to be like many other celebrities or individuals that generate that moment of anticipation. I happen to be the bottleneck, you know, and. It's my responsibility to see, and I have emotion in my throat because I'm imagining an individual that I've seen many, 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 many times. And I just see someone that I fall in love with immediately and want to say, right, for the time we'll have together, it's probably gonna be longer than, than I've been, everyone's been allotted. And being in a position where I can say, like, this machine stops right now until I tell otherwise, because this individual's in need of some love. And so a big fat hug, sincerely, and love. And, and I think when you connect eyes to people in that position, you give them a because what's wanting to they want to tell you, for example, maybe their mother died, they heard a song, you it just got them through that day, and there's, there's a cacophony within them wanting to come out, and it there's not enough time, space, energy, or or uh, a way to walk through their emotion to enable them to do it. So, calming down, and normally, and I have emotion because I see people calm. And it's just a moment of love. There's no ego there. It's the responsibility I feel I have is to bring them a place of peace and love and, and absolutely, hopefully, God, dear God, no disappointment in that anticipation as I can.
0: But as a, as a 19, 20-year-old at the time... Mm. Same story. How did you deal or process that kind of sudden attention?
1: Um, within. Um, you'd have to... Not you. One would have to have a little gaze upon the boy I was because for whatever reason (laughs) a character was put in me in within me of observation I was a a boy then gathering uh, intellect learning experience vocabulary and all the other things that go along with wisdom and age and all the old crispy things we become but I uh I've always been an observer and I've always looked at it slightly outside to think "Wow, this this is bloody cool man but like I go out on stage now, it's kind of like, "Hey guys, you know this—this this is all I've got. <laughs> I can't. Anymore. I'm going to go play some jams on the drums, or I'm going to sing, or whatever I do." And acting gives me a great way to hide behind a camera. I've only got the premieres to deal with, and but otherwise, I'm quite a private person. Painting is entirely an isolated event, as is writing. So I found a resting place that suits my temperament. But never have I felt and found myself in an inflation of ego or self-worth because of noise. I've just thought, well, I don't know why me, and I I believe I should probably deal with this as gratefully and as graciously as I can. I've never felt famous. I know I am, but I've never had that kind of weird thing in me that turns me into a, hopefully a pain in the bum. But um, <laughs> I do know my responsibilities, and I know where I sit in all my professions. But if you sit me within a room, we're not talking about my work. We're talking about life, and you know, is, are you chill? Are you enjoying it? Is there anything you need?
0: I was surprised that as well as all that adoration that bros had you also received a lot of hate mail and death threats as well i mean was that was that i mean that must be you know terrible when you're 18 19 and you're just becoming well known for something that you love to do to then suddenly have this hate out of nowhere for you which i guess in today's society with social media people probably experience a lot more but but back then pre-social media that must have been really awful for you
1: i think well, yeah, it was. Thank you for say, mentioning that. But yeah, it was. I mean, I think we, uh, we had our world of our fans, which was just glorious. And I would say entirely the other noise was of um, abuse. Um, and abuse was the word. I, you know, it was just abuse. That's why, I left, that's why I left the UK. I could, I just reached the limit, as we all should, and we can, and we can, we can get on a plane and leave, which I did. That's changed since then, thankfully. But, um. Yeah, I remember the first. My first introduction to a death threat was when I was in an airport, and the the director of, it was actually in Sydney. I think it was or somewhere in Australia. I think it was. It said came straight up to Matt and I, and our tour manager. Once he'd already spilt the information, they, we we had to redirect an entire commercial airline and fly all baggage separately. It was you're sitting on a plane thinking same? I was in Mexico once. Same situation. I had a four federal police cars bring me back to a two-hour drive to my hotel because there was an understanding that there'd been something arranged you know blah 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 you know and so you have a two-hour moment sitting in the car this was recently and you you have two hours to feel like you know well I guess I hope I make it home safely but
0: how recently recently are we talking
1: uh two and a half three years ago
0: really wow
1: you know and my friends in the car are like they're like oh this is fine with all the lights and stuff and i'm sitting in the front and i say it's all about perspective i guess and i laughed but i was thinking inside well i guess i hope i hope it all works out but i have such faith i think the best scenario is one thing and the worst is that i look at it in patience and calmness and through my life i've just looked at i look at things that way you have to doesn't mean you don't bypass the emotion and the agony of it but i just there are people that depend on me and um there's examples to be given, and also great learning to be had through all sorts of moments. And that moment in the airport, you realise that oh, I, I guess there are, there are people that have extreme feelings. But it, you, the best thing is to take it not so personally, because it's if you reverse engineer it to their agony, then there's something going on they need help with. You know, so I, I just that person now. That's the way I see things.
0: Gosh, that still just must be really scary to have to deal with, though. Let's talk about something a little bit more cheery. So your first tour started out in Sheffield City Hall.
1: Oh, did it? All right.
0: <laughs> and a year later, you became the youngest band to headline Wembley Stadium. So what, what was that like as a 19-year-old playing on that kind of stage? Do
1: you know the funny thing about Wembley Stadium that I remember really clearly, other than the gig, which I'll get to, but it sounds silly, but I'm hitting that bass drum to it when, the, when it wasn't full and the, when the stadium was empty and going, boom, boom. And you're going boom, boom, going around the, the stadium, I say the word stadium now, like what? But um, yeah, it was it was a very 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 strange feeling. I again, I mean, think about it. If you were doing the same thing, I'd imagine your response would be no different to mine. It's that simple. You look at the thing, you think you know it's the truth. You know you're the reason for it. But anyone who can suddenly say I am here, you know, <laughs> I you know, for me it was like my goodness, what is what is going on here, you know it was an amazing and and my mum's in the royal box looking at her boys so it was um you've got to try and fit in the joy in those moments and excitement while you're not addressing the 68 70 000 people in front of you making sure you don't mess up
0: i mean that must be so scary i would not do that
1: you've got to enjoy it and get on with it at the same time
0: i get nervous singing karaoke in front of like five people
1: i couldn't sing karaoke in front of two people i mean i mean if I've got a stage, it's done right. Count me in. But if if you ever see me in a karaoke bar, just grab my hand. We'll walk out and we'll have a beer outside because I don't want to be in there.
0: <laughs> really? Would you not? Would you not do this karaoke?
1: <laughs> I can't. I, I can't bear it. I have a story. I was doing a movie. I, I flew into China. I won't say who, but because people don't know who. But I, I, there was a karaoke moment, and in China there was these very exclusive rooms, which for me just made it even more agonising. So now eight people that I don't know, and everyone gets up in... And sings. And I'm a professional musician. I'm thinking, this is just agonizing for me. And I've only ever done it once in my life because it was polite to do so. And now I'd rather be impolite and say, no, I I just, I do many things, but I don't do karaoke.
0: (laughs) You draw the line. That is it.
1: It's a big fat line in the sand there, I promise. (laughs) I'm with you
0: 100%. So you played almost 50 dates on the Push Tour. And I imagine the physical, energy it takes to drum for a few hours almost every night is immense as well as the the pain and blood (laughs) literally you endured from the blisters from from playing how did you not burn out
1: um it's funny actually i I had that to go through recently when we did the o2 i was doing 10 hours a day rehearsing so 10 hours of drumming a day is i was losing five pounds five pounds of body weight a day wow i get messages all the time you're so lean you're this i'm like look you know <laughs> do what I do comes in this territory, but uh, I'm thankful for it. But yeah, it's with this. You're looking at seven, eight blisters on each hand, and I've got this this drum head somewhere from the O2 training where it's just splats of my blood all over it, and it's dented up. And it's I don't know. It feels like a gorgeous rites of passage. The thing about being a drummer is that you realise that the pain in your hands reaches its threshold. It's just it 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 plateaus. And you have to just say that's the norm, and you play through. The blisters are the sort of base. Uh, if it would be a base test, if you had a you know, the test reading that was neutral, that just becomes the normal pain. You can't think about it. The only thing that did happen to me for the first time in Brixton recently was um, so much sweat from being a smaller venue and a two two hour and ten minute show. I started cramping on my forearms. So my dear best mate and slash executive ran on with a teaspoon of salt and I put half a teaspoon of salt in my mouth and swigged water and we got through it. But I had to, dra- I had to drum through a good couple of minutes of my hands just not wanting to move an inch. But it was... Wow. Drummers are lunatics. That's why I love hanging out with drummers. Man. <laughs> <laughs> are,
0: you, um, are you kind of like slathering on the tiger balm and stuff to keep yourself lubricated and the hands smooth and stuff oh, while you're playing
1: hi mom i think would send me over the edge can you imagine that on the I, one of the things i do is you get an ice bucket in if you get off stage for a second just quickly not not water but ice because uh, water you don't need but loads of salt so just stick it in there for a minute
0: does that not sting like open wounds salt
1: no but count to, Well, going no, if you've got to do a show the next night though you want to get as much salt in there as you can and then you do it, you dry your hands, dry your hands off. And then I used to, in the bros days, I don't do that now because obviously I'm, I'm a bit of a tougher lad, but I used to wear uh, these gloves on my hands because the four shows or so a week would just ripping my hands to shreds. So I end up wearing, uh, I don't wear gloves anymore. But um, yeah, you, blisters are part of the territory. If you if you haven't got blisters and you're drumming,
0: you're yeah, not doing it right. <laughs>
1: A, you know, get a blister or two, mate, please. Because when we drink a pint and I see your lovely soft hands, i am mean, like, are you sure you're a drummer? <laughs> Come on, dude.
0: Do you think you would have had equally great musical success if you'd stuck with your original band name of Gloss instead of Bross?
1: Um I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, I mean, let me answer it this way. I'm really glad we went with the name we did. <laughs> it worked out, didn't it? <laughs> um,
0: people always ask what advice you would give your younger self if you were to meet? But if you were to meet a 19-year-old Luke today, what advice do you think he would give you now?
1: Remember you're your mother's son. That's it.
0: Why, Why do you think he would say that?
1: I don't know. I guess I'm putting words in his mouth. I don't even know if he would. He was so confused and tired and noisy strangers around him. But I think in reality, I hope, I think when I look at him in my mind's eye, I see a closeness to my mother and my grandfather who were just such normal humans, such beautiful humans, non-complaining, guiding. My grandfather was a healer through faith. Um, and my mother was this, you know, really well-spoken, beautifully raised Southeast London girl that sounded otherwise. But... um when I think of him, I don't know. I don't know if he would have so much to say. I think he'd have more to give me by standing there without saying anything. So I think he would teach me by being there, <laughs> as he is in my mind's eye by your question, which is great. Thank you.
0: Okay. It is time to move out of the nostalgia zone and into what I like to call the latter zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. So after the band broke up, you, of course, pursued acting Mm -hmm. and you moved to LA, but you auditioned for two years, sometimes three or four times a day before you had your big break. So after coming from a successful music career, how did you deal with that rejection and what kept you going?
1: I like this because I've not ever spoken about this really in depth, but I I think I think it's important at these times that we just keep things nice and real. You know what I mean? Like, you know, to spare people even it's, and I'm not speaking so, or about to speak so candidly about that experience. I really know the direction for any sympathy. It's not what I'm seeking. I'm certainly doing it for the reason that anyone out there who's going through a struggle, knowing that they're following some dream of theirs, like you, for example, (laughs) who have done it so wonderfully and successfully. Um, I would say it was painful. Um, it was humbling. Sometimes it was humiliating. Sometimes it was annoying, infuriating. I dealt with the pain. You know, I'd have a, I'd have a beer or two, or you know, whatever thing I needed to to chill out and and, and look, try and find a way to get the energy to learn lines and get on with it for the next day. Because sometimes I'd have a whole week of it. There'd be no days clear. But I knew that. That memory of I'd, I'd gathered some funds from doing theater and I'd said to my now my beautiful friend for life and soul friend, but now ex wife Shirley, I'd said to her, You know, I, I'm on the world, I'm on the wooden stage every night in the west end of London and the Academy Awards were on. I spent my life internationally working in every country in the world. And I said, But I'm really not on the world stage anymore, am I? And she said, what do you mean? And then, and she was trying to be supportive as she would be, but she was cool enough to admit the truth of it. And I said, I think I need to, I need to at least swing the bat. Not that I'm sort of hungry to be a movie star or any of this stuff. That's not what it was about. But I thought, if I'm going to do something, why not do it in a level that has a sort of a, a wider reach? A try at least. So I allocated some money, left money in the UK to keep Shirley and Carly safe, and then I went with some cash to the, to, to the states by myself for, for four years, to be honest, and just and carved out. Through yeah, very many many lonely nights. It's soul destroying experience in some ways because the way they treat. I have to say this. I'm not afraid. I don't need their work. Um, the way the casting system works here in California is um, it's inhuman. It's disgraceful. So I'm I I work with people that have the civility to count my 80 movies and the awards that I've been blessed to receive. Not in arrogance in any way, but as much of a surprise to me as the other nominees but um i now walk with an insistence that my effort is counted as you do as we spoke before you, you do with yours but you get through these things and then before you know it you, you hear this crack of the ball on the bat, and you look and you don't need to do anything because you just hit a home run so a number one movie shows up and whatever that effort someone has out there right now like you're doing i told you i do do believe you're going to end up on a, on something that will be a big fat voice somewhere and rightfully so you put your time in and you threw the dice didn't you and and that's all I did and I'm sure can I ask you a personal question as you're asking but did you get any tears along the way on your own
0: yes um I've had a few wobbles doing this where I've thought why is it worth it you know I'm I don't get paid to do it I'm not making any money from it and and it was the thing where I was thinking, I'm spending so much time and energy doing this. And I felt like my husband was, I'm locked away in this room in the study here. My husband was downstairs and he was saying that he was never seeing me because even though I was upstairs, <laughs> he was never seeing me and I was spending so much time doing this. And I, I, one day I just like burst into tears where I was thinking, you know, is this worth it? Is I don't want to keep, although I love doing this, I don't want to do it at the expense of my marriage I you know I he's more important to me than doing this I love doing this but if it why should I continue doing this banging my head against brick wall struggling to book guests you know surely at some point I must cut my losses and and figure out you know look I gave it a good run but if it's not going to work don't make a fool of yourself and and I had another so I had that wobble kind of like in September last year. And then I had another wobble in January doing this second series where it, I just had a period of where I just couldn't book any guests and no guests means no podcast. <laughs> you know? and, uh, and then Luckily, some things started happening. I was able to start booking guests. And, and I don't know what it's going to be like for season three if I'm going to struggle again, if I'm going to have another wobble. I don't know. But
1: <laughs> I don't know if you can repeat visit, but count me in, you you wonderful, courageous warrior. Let me say this to you and for people listening. I, I, if they don't know, I was asked to do your show. And I said to my guy, I have worked with him for many, 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 many years now, decades, a Steve Best, lovely man. He reached out, and I, and I said yes. But I wanted that connection. I just wanted to reiterate that. But there you were having your wobble, which we can then use to someone listening. It might be one person, which for me is enough. I'm sure same for you. But your wobble is both understandable, justified. Um, I haven't made a movie since the pandemic. I lost my vocation entirely. Haven't done. I've done everything from my home, like you. I've not received any remuneration whatsoever this last year and a bit. But. I do feel closer to myself, as I'm sure you do. And, you know, the tears you've shared and the emotion you just shared wonderfully with me and also your listeners is that I think it brings us closer. But it shows that my, 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 my dear friend, Shirley, my ex-wife, says to me, three feet from gold. Remember that three feet from gold. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's, you know, do you really want to stop swinging that pickaxe when you might be three feet from gold? And, you know, the thing is, I find it within my character just harder to walk away from that concept then then to turn around and put the act put it put it on the floor and I think what you were doing why those wobbles so magically what was happening is I have seen you interview a couple of people just by chance and thought ah there's one of those people that come along and just bring a different spin or a different vibe and it's not like you've reinvented the wheel you just brought a connection with you so for what this is worth and got a lot of things that I do, I would speak to you in, and look forward to it in any of my vocations, whether it be painting or music or acting or um, all of it. I'd, I'd look forward to speaking to you because you're great at what you do. So please <laughs> stick with it, <laughs> stick with it. And please say thank you to your wonderful husband, because I'm sure he adores you to pieces. He just misses a cuddle or two, that's all.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. You're making me blush. <laughs> so of course your big break was in Blade 2 opposite Wesley Snipes. And that film started your relationship with the director, Guillermo del Toro. Tell me a bit more about that and your relationship with him.
1: It was fun, actually. David Goya um, is a writer. He was doing his first directorial. He'd written Blade Two, um, Dark City, Batman, The Dark Knight, I think, a bunch of, so many, so many huge, huge movies. And he was doing his directorial debut and they were looking for this Latin, um, South American ideally or even Mexican character to play this role and thankfully one of my team had submitted what about a Cockney and they said would you would you work at it and I said sure so anyway I went into it did the audition David Goy, a bunch of great people got in the car get a call from my agent Hey, what did you do what did you do in the room and I, and I went dude what are you talking about it's my agent he said you booked the part they've already offered it to you I've been in the car 10 minutes Turned out that David Goya and Guillermo were looking for their lead villain for some time. And, and um, he had said, from what I've been told, and obviously this is paraphrasing, but he would said, I think we may have found our bad guy. And, uh, the next day, that night, I was sent the script of to Blade 2. I was asked to read it. I went into the meeting. Lovely casting director and Guillermo. Guillermo said, do you mind if we just sit on our own? And I was like, hold on. Director and me in a room on our own. An hour later, towards the the end of the, call, uh, the end of the meeting, he said, there's a lot of moving parts to this, and uh, I didn't have a name in film at all at that point. So that's all they're caring about. But they were like, I think, I think we may have found our solution here. But leave it with me. And I waited ten weeks mm-hmm. to get a yes on that role. But and then when Hellboy came along, I got a phone call. He'd sent me a script. He was like, Hey, and he, Guillermo del Toro's two favorite expletives. MF, you know, how he said, (laughs) and I said, I said, hello there, no, this is, and he said, what do you think? And I was like, and I, I, we'd had a chat and, um, he said, so I guess I'll see you in Prague. And I just felt so blessed that a role would be given, you know, so easily, you know, it was, it was something that he'd shown trust there. And I, and to be honest with you, I haven't worked with him since, but, um, I, I, I sincerely can't wait to work with that man again. He's, he's a great director, a great filmmaker and, and frankly, a wonderful person.
0: You directed your first movie called Your Move a couple of years ago, which you also wrote and starred in. It's such a long and stressful process to make an independent film, just to get the finance and get it going and everything. And it's like they're real labors of love, I know from from my filmmaker friends. With hindsight, would you do it again, <laughs> or just concentrate on the acting?
1: Oh no, I won an award for that uh, for that film. I got I won it for best best director and. Of- festival which was a great deal it wasn't a big deal in the sense of the size of the festival but it was a little way to say hey stick with it i i I love directing um what i wouldn't do again i'll always be involved as a producer on anything i direct because i want to keep an eye on both the nine items and the money and make sure that people are doing what they say they're doing but um i will have a number of great 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 producers around me that take the load i did that because my mother when she passed before i finished the movie i said to her i promise you i'll finish the film and um, I dedicated the movie. At the end, I had an animated butterfly created for her and her name put within the end of the movie to say, you know, just in loving memory of Carol. So then there's this little white butterfly flies away. But you, I promise your mother's I promise your mother. But I w- I'll, never, I'll never do that again in the sense of wearing all hats at the level that I was lead producer on that show. So I, I had nowhere to run. And then I had to be the actor and then the director. It was just, 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 no. Too many. I would distribute. I, we didn't have the funds. I had two hundred and forty grand to make a movie that people wanted to look like a two to three million dollar film. And you got that's when you got a quarter of a million dollars to do everything and one camera. Um, I had to run around a lot. I I I burnt myself out in that movie for sure.
0: Probably lost some more hair follicles.
1: I don't have need to lose. What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> They're growing, in, I've got hair in places I don't need it now.
0: Isn't that how what what uh, I hear aging is like for men? You lose it on the top, and then you like sprout it elsewhere.
1: Let me tell you, if you saw me in my in my glorious state in which I arrived on this planet, I make great effort for none of that to be true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take care of myself the best I can. I think you know what I think presentation is extremely important as a British man. <laughs> So, no, I fight. I'm an, it's like, you know, it, 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 I do think maybe the battle becomes a more of an, an avid pursuit as we get older, but, you know, it doesn't mean we can't win the fight at the end of the day.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about what's been keeping you busy over the past year, which is your artwork. Mm. Um, and this weekend just gone, you held an exhibition for your collection. Yes. Called Love and Faith. Uh, but what I find really interesting is that it's the first art collection released as nfts and nfts are still quite a a new concept for, for most people if you like and can you explain explain a little bit about what they are and why you decided to be an early adopter
1: well i'll talk about it briefly because i'm still new in the game i've done the research obviously that's needed to get this thing going one of the things that's different a non-fungible um, token is like for example the fungible element is like something that exists in its whatever state whether it be a, you know, a statue of you or me or a coin, it's the same value within its weight and its stock value, whatever, fungible. The non-fungible is a virtual currency that's normally so far been associated with digital formats. So there's ownership without copyright infringement, which is a really interesting thing. Certainly somebody who, as an artist, normally where we get stung is on the copyright. But what I wanted to do was to bring something that I think gives a new start. Now, one of the things, for example, people address with that currency is it's economically, sorry, energetically quite high to generate the ledgers of these coins but alongside a car manufacturer or all the, the others it's just a it's a bit of a witch hunt it's and it's something that can be fixed once this pioneering thing has a chance to thrive which we're addressing but what i'm doing is i'm doing i'm getting my art 17 pieces 18 one of the light which is a depiction of jesus in light, not being produced in any other form but the original but we're getting the entire Collection. So each painting is being brought to ser- a serograph, which is a, a super, super complex process. It's not a lithograph, it's, it's not a screen print. It's layers and layers and layers, and, and frankly, three months per painting to bring one serograph to life. And then we do a run of 333 on Earth. So they become this museum grade. The guy that does my serographs does uh, Bob Dylan and uh, Dr. Seuss and lots of other known artists around the, around the world, but at, at a great level, museum grade printing on museum paper that's extremely hard to get. So then that in itself, because of my contribution in in the arts for the last 30 years has a value. Then they say they can be collectively owned as a tangible object, and then bridging that gap between virtual to real. So then there's, you know, I think 5,661 serographs that are physical objects being now bridging that gap from virtual so there's a tangible object and a stock which gives an actual value to something. It's no longer virtual, so it is the pioneering stages, and it's exciting. And there's, I've got a lot of team of people educating me about it on the move, and um, thankfully, those people are full of integrity. And, and My art has found its way alongside the uh, um, the consultancy of Christie's and my partners. It's been given a value that, that will bring, I guess, some great philanthropic power to the art. So I'm excited.
0: Yeah, it's four hundred. Some $400 million, I think, the collection's been valued at, which is just it's like a mind-blowing amount of money.
1: In secondary value, yeah. Not the that's not, That doesn't include the originals. That's, mm-hmm. that's the secondary art. The serigraphy, which is $5,000, and each one is tokenized and can be bought, whether it be individually or collectively. But that's a stock, and if, if art doesn't go down in price, and, and I don't mean this in a macabre or morbid way, but when I'm no longer here, the art doesn't go down in value. So it's a stock. That becomes accessible say, well, where do you put it? And if if it's within art that I've asked, that make sure that if it's communally owned, it's put in places that can be communally viewed. So then the stock is then tangible in its message. It brings philanthropic power through finance, which is you know, listen, how many houses do I need? I want to use that money for good for good reason. But um, it means art and an exhibition of love and faith gener- generate a powerhouse philanthropically. Yeah, I get to pay my gas bill, but a lot of people will find a civilian making great effort, myself and my wonderful team in great support, including UN ambassadors and people with no names mentioned, gathering to bring this philanthropic idea that has been funded by an exhibition of love and faith that I didn't even know I could do. So, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised by the numbers and thankful, but my mind is heading more towards I haven't th- thought about what, you know, what a pair of shoes I buy myself. I'm looking at... <laughs> What, what that could possibly generate where it might be needed in these times where people are finding it so hard to get off, get ideas off the ground. I'd love to be a quiet, it's not going to be that quiet, but I, obviously because I won't, but it won't be seeking attention. It would be like, look, what, where can we bring some solutions? Not just sort of patches, like where can we help? So uh, I, my plan is to keep painting and keep raising. And and uh, if that's a blessing that I have in my life, then my goodness, I should, I'll be on my knees daily praying with gratitude for sure. Mm.
0: So the money raised from the art sale is is going to go where have you decided the places that you're going to donate it to.
1: No, it's my. It will be mine. But it it, it it's what will be created is our engines that I think will survive me, and philanthropic uh, with great business minds that I preserve, hopefully, please God, little engines of money that that generate a stream that that don't run out mm-hmm. that bring beautiful philanthropic change and i hope dear god that i have a uh, collective voice with many other contributors to say money can be used really well you know it can de- it can you know it can be vilified can't it sometimes but really without it in the right hands it can be um it can be upsetting but when it's in good hands you know there's a lot of i'm around a lot of good people right now i promise it won't be uh, you won't see me cruising down um oxford street in my Lambo. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I've been following the evolution of your art on Instagram, and I think it started early last March when you kind of did small sketches, and then by the end of the month, you were on giant canvases. But your first piece, The Light, which you mentioned before, you mixed ground frankincense and myrrh into the paint and used 24 karat gold leaf in the crown of the picture. And I noticed there's a lot of gold in your artwork as well, but but that's more than just the hobbyist picking up some paintbrushes and having a go, isn't it? (laughs)
1: don't forget those layers of 150 layers of gold leaf and five-week journey of learning um i decided to paint jesus because i have great love for him so i i knew just within myself you can't i i didn't i would feel really alongside his his effort our humanity i would have felt if i couldn't complete a painting so i chose a subject deliberately but i just Not just the crown i wanted to imbue i put the lord's prayer underneath the canvas and i wanted it to have a symbolism of me to me of something that was so much greater that something had time to have a place in my life again because frankly what with life relationships bills monies career and everything else I i hadn't had a chance to look at him for a while so i painted him in a depiction of light within my mind's eye when i meditate so i just What it was, it was the pursuit to feel like I'd found that resting image that matched, I guess, my crazy third eye during meditation. And I I could see it. I just didn't know how to bring it to fruition. It's like learning a drum rhythm that you just can't do at first. And a week later, you think, oh my God, I never thought it would feel this easy. But I, five weeks and tears and craziness, you know, just, just, I'd made a deal with him and myself so I didn't give up. So, 18 hours into a day sometimes feeling that you hadn't made a step forward or one I hadn't made a step forward and in the end of it I not only learned how to have a little idea about how brushes moved and paint but I also utterly (laughs) fell in love with it and 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 22 pieces later in one year I've only just decided now to stop because I, I want to dedicate to fitness and to get myself back in there for a minute but it was a spiritual outpouring it was a glorious glorious it's been a glorious glorious um experience and realization if i'm honest
0: because i was gonna say you, you were painting so frequently i was surprised you had any wall hanging space left in your house because i'd see you were like you put another one on the wall if you're like has how many walls does he have yeah, um
1: but, <laughs>
0: but now that you've lived with them for so long and they're such intensely personal creations tied to your faith
1: yeah
0: are you going to be sad to say goodbye to them after they've sold
1: Oh my god! I've, it's weird. I mean, painting. I ne- and this is going to be so strange for some people to hear this. But what happens with painting? You spend a great deal of time in the concept of painting. You might might be twelve hours, eighteen hours. Sometimes for me, when I'm in a, my with things like the church, and then cheers for Maryam I was bedded in those guys. But um, they become almost like re- relatives on this wall. Especially in, in the pandemic, they they brought color and meaning and concept to my day. And, no, I don't have a family particularly other than my brother that I speak to. And so my, my colleagues are my friends and, and my art are my companions. So, of course, but I will be sure that if they leave my hands, we've got serographs of every single painting being produced slowly over the next year, which, which is a lot of work. But if I relieve myself of one of the real ones, the originals, then um, I want to make sure the man or woman that has that has a heart that can receive it, not just the wallet that can have it. And I don't mean that in a grandiose way. I just I think they should, art should be should be treated with gentle hands no matter what its origin, especially if it represents love and faith. But again, if they're not needed, what I would like to do is to say maybe there's chances to donate here and there within a purchase price and the entire amount can just go somewhere amazing and it can be hung where people can see. But there's a lot of philanthropic people that love art, that actually love the idea of people seeing art. And it was those people that have been speaking to me saying, look, we we can find all sorts of fun homes for these paintings uh, and the messages that sit within them. And I, I still don't know, I'm still learning how to paint. So I'm just going along for this glorious ride, if I'm honest with you.
0: You've spent 20 years establishing yourself as an actor. Yeah. Do you have any conflicting feelings about establishing yourself as an artist now? Because people like to pigeonhole Mm -hmm. others and have trouble seeing people in new ways when they're so used to seeing them in a certain way, which you must have felt transitioning from music to acting in the first place.
1: Oh, hardly. I mean, I think, you know, I'd say, look at Mark Wahlberg or these guys, you know, those, those days where you were, where, um, you know, I me. Mean? I'm 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 a, I'm not a fan of labels anyway. People say you're an actor. I say I'm a man that does things, you know, I'm I'm, I'm curious constantly and I and people people have got used to my my curiosities a bit more than they used to I mean acting writing painting directing producing and uh, and some other stuff I'm sure I I I just want to try things you know I've like if when I learned to fly an aircraft it wasn't because I wanted to be a professional airline pilot I just wanted to know if I could
0: you can fly an aircraft
1: yeah and scuba diving and
0: how big how big of an aircraft are we talking
1: the smallest one they make in the world (laughs) You know the one you learn in. Pi- I learned in a Piper warrior, but um, I foresee it. Um, it's, it's. You know what it is. It's, I, I'm a big advocate of saying, please, guys, be curious. And I, I you know, here I am. We're discussing art, for example, and, and what it's bringing to my life. I would have insisted. I would have told you, I can't even draw a stick figure now. Not am I Not only am I not limiting myself there within my own language, but I'm then probably leading myself to not do it. Because I've already told you and everyone I can only I couldn't draw a stick figure, but as soon as I tried, I was like, "Oh my! I've I've been dying to do this." I just talked myself out of it, and I just wonder how many gifts sit within so many millions of people, and I just I just want to share that concept so that I can look around at lots and lots and lots and lots of success stories. And just keep raising glasses for people because those success stories we need to look. Remember, there used to be a time, don't you think, where pioneering things or success stories were the Wright brothers were nobody was throwing eggs at the Wright brothers. Everybody is hoping that would get off the ground. Every unintended. And I think we must reach a point when we see somebody, and I look at somebody and make, oh my god, they made five billion dollars, and so I'm like, oh my god, and they did it with that, and they're still doing nice things. And I'm going to jump up and down and get a bottle of something for them, and even if they don't know me and say bravo, because. I think that's probably how we're going to get through this. you know.
0: Going back to the music, of course, you reunited with Matt for a 30th anniversary Bross concert a couple of years ago, which we mentioned in the first half at the O2, and it was all documented in When the Screaming Stops. Were you ever concerned about showing the waltz and all relationship between you both?
1: I'll be honest with you, as a filmmaker, I would certainly within the concept and the categorization of a documentary, I think anything other than truth is misleading. So, if you one walks into a documentary intentionally, you walk in. I certainly speak for myself. I can't do more than that. But I, I, I had every intention of walking in there as myself, knowing full well that that would be my responsibility as the documented person.
0: You touchingly spoke about your mum yeah. in the film, and and when I was younger, I used to fight with my brother all the time. I used to fight like cat and dog. He's four years older than me, and my parents used to say to us all the time, you're going to have to get along because when we're gone, you're only going to have each other. Mm. Since you lost your mum, are you more aware of that kind of sentiment?
1: Um, yes, of course. But I'd be honest with you, you know, granddad's grandmothers, sisters, everyone pretty much, you know, we all go down that road. I think one of the reasons I like say, I'm not a Buddhist, but I get great comfort from Buddha and the practices of and the wisdom of, but I think accepting our, our, our mortality is not a morbid thing. It's a transition. But I think what, what it's shown me is that my faith actually gets stronger with each member of my family I lose because I feel as that happens, I'm one step cl- closer to joining them. And I know full well I'll leave this earth. I know it today. I just don't know when, if it's tomorrow or longer. Um, and the reason why I treat, people in my life, I treat strangers in my life the same way as my family is because I, I've just come to the conclusion that every human I see is a reflection of myself as, and, and as I am of them and we are with each other. Our struggles have different names. Our struggles have different origins, but they all sit within roofs and names of mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. And we go through such a common, common, common experience. And, and I think we've lost, we've forgotten that. And I, and for me, um losing my loved ones just gives me more reason to give more precious intention to the present without and the quickest way you can aggravate anyone could aggravate me is to tell me otherwise on that because it's been funded by the loss of those i love and to say our free will is there to be used to trip with or to build with it's up to us but um Yeah, I've learned greatly from the loss of those that I loved, and I continue to every morning they're not here. I got up this morning with some good news, and and not in a bad way, but like anyone, sometimes you don't have people to phone about that good news. And um, at those moments, you sit and you gaze and you ponder and you recover, right? I had that before I spoke to you today. But I'm not sharing because it's something I don't know how to get through. I'm just reminding someone out there right now, You know, there's two of us, or maybe even more. And it's a healthy thing to do, I think. I think we should just keep, you know, and and every subject I have a chance to sort of unite us, I'm going to do it because I'm old enough and crispy enough to do that these days.
0: What about the loneliness?
1: I don't feel lonely anymore as much as I'm aware of my aloneness sometimes. And that brings, you know, I'm a melancholy person because, not because I'm sad, I'm a very happy person and joy filled. Anyone who knows me, I'm always kind of smiling in my eyes because I'm just thankful. But I'm also extremely melancholy within contemplation, especially if what I'm contemplating, like, so for example, right now, Israel, the, the the region of that part of the world, conflict all over the world are going on right now. The ones that don't seem worthy enough of coverage, but they're happening. Sit deeper with me at the moment because I feel they're so contradictory to what we need, and it, it hurts. But, um, you know, consciousness is needed, and I'm an advocate of that right now. It isn't about... I don't have a new record out I don't have a new movie out I'm just alive and I'm just we're talking aren't we we're just contributors in our own way
0: so then talking about new music you've hinted before that there could be another bros documentary as well as a new album and possibly a tour obviously we've had a pandemic so any of those sorts of plans may have been put on hold but is that still happening
1: if, if given the opportunity to do so bros would absolutely 100 percent, without doubt be playing lots of shows live where whoever wants to see us and where wherever they want to see us whether that's one or more but we'll be doing a gig i know i i met and i've spoken we'd love to do something outdoors so we can all just uh, you know get a big large space and if we have to adhere to restrictions i think it's going to come a point where we have to fight for like all right we get it so heck, do you want 30 feet between each person then you got it we'll give you 40 But if I've got over 1,000 people in a field instead of 30,000, then I'll I'll find a way to have them in there. Um, So we don't deny each other both the oxygen, literally, that we need and also the the uplift of seeing each other happy, even if it's in a profound distance. I don't care if that's how it happens, and that's what we'll do. If we're given, yes, you can do it as long as you do this, then I guess it's going to be, it won't be about profit. It will be about the event itself, and I promise you that will happen
0: like a Hyde Park or a Nebworth House type concert?
1: Again, wherever they have us, like-minded people that love the idea of community coming together just to watch some lights. And f- I want fireworks, I want lights, I want celebration. I want, I want people eating stuff and throwing it at the distance. You know, just having fun. I, I, you know, there has to be some peace and love in the room again, you know, and also some colour uh, some some bangs and some whistles and some fun that are not associated with sadness. And, and as an entertainer, <laughs> I can't tell you, it's like a fire underneath me. I really just want to bring, you know, there are people beautifully finding cures out there, right? There are people building architectural um, you know, monuments to things. But I'm, I'm in the arts. I think people need music, color, sound, and, and stimulus, and, and things that give them hope. And, and it's not like you say, what's the cure of that? I say, okay, let's have 10 years without it and 10 years with, and see if there's statistically any change in people's morale. And I think I know, really mm. know the answer to that. I don't need a scientist.
0: Well, the, I mean, the arts has been instrumental in getting people through the pandemic, really, isn't it, in terms of the entertainment, what they've retreated to, watching films, and, you know, the nostalgia we talked about, watching old films again. Um, you know, if if we didn't have that, I think a lot of people would have really struggled during lockdown to not, have access to these great creative outlets that help people take their mind off how, for want of a better phrase, shit everything is. And and it's
1: you know you know being vibrant, being colorful, being childlike, not childish, be being expressive. You know it, you know we need support collectively. We need love. And I think if there was a way to put a concert on that adhered to every single restriction, which I would respect. It does not mean I'm not going to look at that square footage and say, I guess we've got this amount of people and I guess it's happening. Because if, it, if, there's, if there's not a penny in it, I don't care. If it's achievable, we're going to do it. And I know with what's going on in my life, if I'm blessed with the ability to bring it to fruition myself, I'll do so.
0: And can we expect new music at this concert that might happen?
1: Listen, if, if, if it's about putting the show on and getting it happening, then who knows? I don't care. I think, I think the gig... You know, we've got 13 hit records. It's not nothing wrong with playing a few of those. Um,
0: but I've been seeing you on Instagram. You've been posting new music almost every Sunday.
1: I'm trying to write a song a week for people. It's like, a, I don't know, like, it's a small little bubble, but it's, 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 it's a way to show gratitude and love, support. It's all I can do. You know, it's exhausting sometimes, but it, it's, it's rewarding because I see a community gathering that's safe. And I am like a bit of a lion when it comes to, hey, come on, you, you, these people are lovely here. You know, so if someone's rude, I don't even debate. I'm like, block, get out of here. You're at it. You know, it's no point. Go be miserable somewhere else.
0: <laughs> well, I look forward to hearing the potential new Bross music soon. Um, Luke. It's been so lovely talking with you. Best of luck with love
1: and faith. Thank you so much. Lovely to and but always count me in for your wonderful uh, your your efforts. I, I I spotted them from overseas. And I think what you're doing is a nice, refreshing, needed uh, tone in journalism. So bravo, congratulations, and keep doing it, and go and give your husband a hug.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Massive thanks again to Luke for being so generous with his time talking with me. You can find out more about his artwork at lukegossart.com. So that's it. The last episode of season two. I'd like to thank all my guests from this series. They get dozens of interview requests every day. So I'm so honoured they choose my little podcast to share their stories. And thank you too for listening. This past year has been a roller coaster of emotions. As I mentioned to Luke, there have been tears along the way making this show booking guests is so difficult and not gonna lie the constant rejection is pretty hard sometimes but the podcast is now listened to in more than 100 countries and I've been number one in the Apple charts in quite a few of them including my own so it's something I'm extremely proud of and thank you so much for sticking it out with me. I say it every episode but I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from so I really appreciate you choosing this one. I don't really talk about it but as I also said to Luke I don't make any money from this podcast I don't have sponsorship and I don't have any advertising and it costs me money to make it so if you've enjoyed just one episode over the past year it would be amazing if you could please support the show just visit celebritycatchup.com support where you can donate the cost of coffee or whatever you'd like which will help pay the running costs If you can't afford to donate, I know times are tough, just don't keep the podcast to yourself. It would really help me out if you could share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. Hit that follow button, leave a nice review, all that stuff massively helps too. I'm going to take a little break but I'll be back in late summer with a third series and more guests, hopefully, talking about their life after that thing they did and giving you a fortnightly dose of 80s, 90s and noughties nostalgia. Until next time, wherever in the world you are, thanks for listening.